0: Masato ma sadgamaya tamso ma joter gamaya amritam gamaya Om shanti, shanti, shanti Om. Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om peace. Peace, peace. Good morning, good morning everybody. And it's good to be back, although temporarily. And it's also a very auspicious day because it's the birthday of Swami Adbhutananda. Uh, he was one of the 16 direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna who they became monks and they were the founders of our order. Swami Vivekananda was the leader. But there were 15 other young men, one of them was not actually young, one of them was older than Sri Ramakrishna himself, <laughs> Swami Advaitananda. Advaitananda Ji was the first among all of them to come to Sri Ramakrishna actually, more or less. Uh, he, uh, he was also unique in the sense that he was practically illiterate. And somebody called him the miracle of Sri Ramakrishna, that this person illiterate and he remained illiterate. And yet he became an enlightened person, a Brahma Jnani, a wonderful teacher. Um, So today, what I thought I would do is a session of Ask Swami. Those of you, you know that we have these occasionally. There are questions which come from the live audience here and questions collected from people sending in emails from across the world. Um, I, I know a lot of questions have accumulated. Unfortunately, for various reasons, we have not been able to do these sessions for quite a while. Uh, Only a few of them could be sorted out and um, collected and arranged thanks to the efforts of our team here. So some of those questions will be read out and put to me. I enjoy these sessions also. Uh, You see, it gives me an opportunity to think about the the same teachings from different angles. There's a saying that in teaching you learn twice, uh, which I find to be really true. It's really useful for my own personal uh, spiritual practice. And a good part of teaching, a solid part of teaching is uh, responding to questions, queries. In the, in the ancient texts, you will find there's something called like a and a going on, a question and answer. There, there was a person defending a particular position, in Sanskrit called the Siddhantin, the, the position defender. And there, was, there were a variety of other opponents, which was called purva that means the op- uh, opposing point of view. And they would come from different angles, somebody from the school of Sankhya, somebody from the school of Nyaya, or the yoga school, or Mimamsa, or various kinds of Buddhist schools, and attack your position. And then you would have to respond to those questions. They were wonderful, very deep, uh, very subtle discussions. The advantage was, what good does it do you to engage in these dialectics? Spiritually, what good does it do you? The advantage is this. Our own understanding of our own position becomes deeper. When you consider various criticisms, various opposing or possible alternative points of view, your own understanding of those points of view and your own point of view also becomes deeper. In Sanskrit, there is a, uh, there's this metaphor. It's called sthūna nikandana nyaya which means driving the post deeper. So yeah, suppose you are, uh, you are driving in a wooden post into the ground. The way you do it is you push it into the ground, but you move it around and pull it out again and again push it in and again pull it out and again push it in. Each time you pull it out and push it back into the ground, it goes in deeper and more firm. So this process of uprooting, cert, um, examining our own belief systems, our own thinking, uh, rationally, critically, it's a very good exercise really. Um, So that's what we do here. The way we will proceed is, Diane will put a question, we'll start off to break the ice. People are often shy about asking questions. So we'll uh, take a question from the internet audience. When you think about your own questions, raise your hand, I'll call you up here, and you come and tell us your name and ask your question. Diane.
1: Yes, Swamiji, um, we're starting out actually with three questions on your (laughs) favorite subject, consciousness. (laughs) Um, The first one is uh, Saraswath S. I understand from your lectures that we are not the body or the mind, we are the unchanging self. Then to whom does enlightenment happen? Certainly it is not the body or the self. Then is this mukti only a mind game? Then Olivia V. Intellectually, I can understand that all is Brahman and that I am Brahman. But if this were so, I am then responsible for all my experiences. There is so much pain, hatred, and injustice in the world. I cannot think how I have been able to cause this to even enter into my consciousness. Moreover, if I have caused this, then shouldn't I be responsible for all this misery? at least at some level. I know you will say that at the transactional level of consciousness, we have to deal with karma. Who's who's karma, collective karma? This seems like a cop-out, because we all have to live at the transactional level of consciousness for a greater part of our time here. Please help me to understand this. And the third question is from Mahantesh. I have heard many times that Brahman, God, Atman, the self, ultimate reality is niguṇa, which means it has no characteristics like happy, sad, envy, no guṇas, sattva, rajas, tamas. But yet Brahman is blissful, which means extremely happy. Is that not a contradiction?
0: Okay, these are various questions about some central teachings of Advaita Vedanta coming from different points of view. Which this is exactly what I was talking about. And one thing to keep in mind is, that often the question that is being asked um, could be very beneficial, not only to the person who's asking, but to those who are listening. It might be just be our question. So it's good to listen to the question and the uh, discussions which follow. Instead of being all waiting for my turn, I'll ask my question. So the first question is about um, you know, I, I like that part when he says that is uh, enlightenment then just a mind game? Uh, is it just a mind game? If I am Brahman, then who has samsara and who gets enlightenment? If I am not the body and mind, the body cannot get enlightened or uh, you know become free, become an enlightened being. And... Brahman does not need enlightenment. The absolute reality is beyond samsara anyway. So who gets enlightened? So this is a standard question. When you probe into Advaita Vedanta, at one point this question will come to all of us. Wait a minute. If I am one with God, if I am pure being, awareness and bliss, then who is in samsara and who gets enlightenment? Who is listening to Vedanta? Who needs all of this? The short answer is, you, who, me, I'm God. Do you know that you're God? If you know that you're God, you would have no problem at all. The question of enlightenment and, uh, you know, uh, of spiritual practice and overcoming suffering and getting enlightened, the whole question becomes moot if you know that you are already beyond suffering. Why would you even bother? But, uh, that's you are uh, avoiding the question. You are clearly saying that, I am Brahman, I am one with God, Um, so how can I need enlightenment? The thing is, we have to see from what perspective we are asking the question. Right now, when we ask the question, we have to be honest that I am asking the question as this body-mind complex. Yes, I hear that there is something called Brahman. I hear that um, I am the absolute. I am one with God. I hear that. I may even understand some of that. But honestly, what I, what I feel about myself, my identity, and more importantly, how I behave in the world and react to things in the world is as a body-mind complex, as this person. As long as I think this, um, I need... Spirituality, I am in samsara, I need spiritual knowledge, I need spiritual practice, and I need enlightenment. You, see, you still have not answered the question then, exactly who is it? Who is in samsara, who has the problems, and who is seeking a solution? Is it Brahman? Is it the body? Is it the mind? The jiva, the sentient being which we are, is a peculiar creature. It is the absolute. It is Brahman. You are that absolute reality. And yet, uh, right now, Vedanta will say under the influence of ignorance, under the influence of Maya, we feel and think and act as if we were not. We feel and think and act as if we were this body and mind. This is called the jiva, sentient being. The sentient being is none other than Brahman. You are one with God. And yet you think you are not. Is it just a mind game then? Vedanta says, when you get enlightenment, you get what you already had. Praptasya prapti. What what we always had, we get that. And what do you remove when you get rid of samsara, all the problems of samsara? You get rid of what was never there. Nivrittasya nivritti. What was never there at all to begin with is removed. What you always had to begin with, you get that. Now that sounds like a classic con, con game, you know. <laughs>
1: um,
0: so is it just a mind game? Now, look at the presupposition beneath that question, underneath that question. Just a mind game. You know, what lies behind this kind of um, language is that I think this is real. This physical world of people and buildings and this body. Um, and matter, this is real, compared to this, I know there is a mind, that mind is somewhat less real and this God, Brahman, Atman, whatever you are talking about is very theoretical, it's not at all real, it's very thin just the other way around Brahman is the reality and body, mind, the entire world is an appearance of that Brahman Don't underestimate the mind. It's just a mind game. As if a mind game is nothing. All of our samsara is the mind. Proof. When you fall asleep, what's samsara? What do you see of this world? Nothing. What do you know of, about yourself? Nothing. What about all the big problems of this world? Nothing. Recently I was um, a the have a Divinity School and outside the class we had a discussion, just sort of ongoing discussion with some of the grad students and one of the students was saying that, you know the Advaita point of view that ultimately we are all one divine reality, that we are all going to become enlightened. That, that was the question. Does everybody be, is everybody enlightened, saved at the end or not? Because there's this doctrine that only some are selected to be enlightened. One of the students was from a Calvinist background and was saying that um, there is this. Those who are going to be saved, it's already decided. And there are those who are not going to be saved. Whereas in comes something like Vedanta, which says that ultimately everybody is going to be enlightened. Because you are Brahman already, what can stop you? So the question was, you know, a student asked me, a brilliant young man. He asked me... Um, you know, still, it feels wrong to think that Hitler and Mother Teresa will end up at the same place. <laughs> when you put it that way, it seems so unjust. I said to him, all right, Hitler and Mother Teresa, they end up at the same place every day. It's Just a matter of fact, not a question of belief, just a matter of fact. What do you mean? When Hitler is in deep sleep and Mother Teresa is in deep sleep Is Hitler Hitler or Mother Teresa Mother Teresa? Nothing And that happens every night when you go to sleep All your individual personality is wiped out With the best of people and the worst of people It disappears into down a black hole of nothingness Do we become nothing then? No Because that that mask that we put on, the personality which is good and evil, um, that is still a mask. It's not the real you. Therein in fact lies the possibility of salvation and, and, and saving. Let's think about it. When they were five years old or two years old, was Mother Teresa Mother Teresa? Was Hitler Hitler? No? So is is evil nothing? Is good nothing? Of course not. There is a, there is a great uh, significance to it. That's where karma comes in. Uh, and yes, the evil person, person who has put on that mask of evil has to pay for uh, all of that. There's a karmic consequence. And the person who's good um, also gets the reward. And spiritual life you cannot become spiritual straight from evil to saintliness, It's from, through good alone. But spirituality is beyond both good and evil. But that does not mean from the spiritual perspective or an Advaitic perspective, evil and good are the same. They are not. Evil is evil. It has to be overcome and transformed into the good. It's only after you are moral and ethical, then you can think of being saintly. Our swamis often say, when a young man comes to become a monk, he says, uh, they are often told, "Be a gentleman first. Then you can think about becoming a monk." What does that mean? It transforms the inner nature, and that's part of becoming spiritual. So Advaita does not say evil and good are uh, equal, or they are, they don't exist, or um, we should not be concerned with that. Not at all. We should be deeply concerned with overcoming evil and transforming it into good, and encouraging the good. But Advaita does say. That there is an ultimate reality which is both, which is beyond both good and evil and that's our real nature. And that's always our real nature. Physical world, the subtle world and then the spiritual world. They are not three different things. They are deeper and deeper realities of the same reality, a better and deeper understanding of the same reality. What we understand as this physical world and we take this to be the reality. And the mind to be something uh, not as real as this table. This table is really real. It's really real and the mind is, it's real but in some sort of vague sort of way. And God, Atman, consciousness, that's mostly theory. Advaita says it's just the opposite. Follow this. Swami Vivekananda says, that it's a matter of perspective. At one perspective, it is all matter. And the scientist will come in and say, That's what I'm telling you all along. <laughs> but then when you look deeper, it's all mind. And you look further and deeper, it's the Atman or it's pure consciousness. How does that work? Give it a try. I'll, I'll just tell you something. Just see if it works. Here is this physical world people and you're sitting and obviously the chair feels pretty solid and the ground under your feet feels pretty solid and you feel that you have a physical body here and this physical world around us seems so real. And if you were at this moment to suddenly sit up in your bed and think, oh, I dozed off, I, I, I forgot to go to the Vedanta society, I was dreaming I was in the Vedanta society. Actually, I was napping and on my bed or my couch. Then when you look back upon what you had just seen, All those people and the hall and the the building and your own body and the floor you felt which felt so solid underneath you. All that was part of your dream. Which means it was all mind. Whatever we dream about, even if we dream about a physical real thing or a person out there. When we wake up we realize, oh it was all in my mind. Which means all those things you dreamt about which seem solid and real and separate from you. They all, they nothing other than figments of your imagination, your, your dream. Are, we, are you together with me that it's possible? It's possible such a thing, such a scenario is possible? Okay. At this point you will say, yes, Swami, I understand in a dream, but this is real. I am awake here. Even here, if you consider your, ex- your experiences, Your experience of what you see and hear and smell and taste and touch, which feels real. It's all mediated through our senses and our mind. What do I mean by that is, when you're looking at me, looking at this orange person standing in front of you, uh, it's basically light reflected from uh, these clothes in my body which goes into your eyes. This clot is not going into your eyes, God forbid, you'd have to call 911 if you... (laughs) The world does not enter our senses. Our eyes, for example, are designed to take in only one and only one thing, light. So reflected light comes into our eyes, into the lenses and then the image is formed and almost instantaneously, it's not even light anymore. Think, Think now, the entire world of things has been reduced to light first, step one. Second step, within a fraction of a second, it's no longer light. It's tiny bursts of electricity in our neurons being transmitted very fast She's an expert here So To our brain centers Already no, no people, no animals, no sky, earth, building Nothing, just bursts of electricity in our brain And this is absolutely standard neuroscience Nobody says that the world has entered your brain, of course not now at one point and we don't know how at, the, at one point those little bursts of electricity are suddenly converted into a, a extraordinary representation of the world what we call our mind we see people and the sky and flowers we feel and not only just seeing hearing sounds and feeling cold or, or warm all of that is now reconstructed. At that level, we have already gone beyond the physical uh, uh, body, the brain. We have gone into something which we just call the mind. Which means whatever we are experiencing here right now is at that level. We are not, nobody here is directly experiencing a world out there. It's all through the eyes and the nervous system and the brain the skin and the nervous system and the brain and the nose and the tongue and the ears, nervous system, brain, from there one step forward or deeper into what we call the mind. What you experience is only your mind. True or not? It's actually self-evident. What scientists will say and many philosophers will say, yes that's true Swami but what but it's still an accurate representation of an existing world outside. An accurate representation of an existing world outside. Every word of that is, is open to doubt now. <laughs> Why do you think what you are seeing is an accurate representation of the world outside? Well, w- one group of thinkers, uh, evolutionary you know, Darwinists, will say that if human beings are animals, we are basically sophisticated animals, so these, these bodies at least are sophisticated animal bodies and if they do not accurately represent their environment outside, they wouldn't be able to survive. So this this is a dogma of our times so for the last 150 years since Darwin. I don't know how far Darwin would agree with this but we have taken it further. So neo-Darwinists would say that because our bodies are designed for survival and a body and a brain which does not represent it, its environment accurately, Will not survive in that environment. Uh, if you can't see the tiger hunting you, and then you're going to be eaten up. So you, your genes will not be transmitted further, and so, so that kind of behavior will be eliminated. So your, your nervous system must be representing the world accurately outside. Now that's under challenge. Um, there is, I forget, there are some important researchers in neuroscience who are saying, not at all. If your nervous system actually accurately reported what's going on in the world, you'd be paralyzed into inactivity. It's such a vast amount, torrent of information pouring in. Your nervous system, in order to survive, the body has to collate, filter out information and present some actionable points. You're like the executive sitting in there and your secretary filters out almost entirety of the world and just gives you a few things to do. So what is being? No, it's, it's uh, very interesting. Uh, one professor was giving a talk. and He said that imagine your computer. When you are doing we are working at the computer on your screen, you see all those icons. There's a word, and uh, there is um, uh, Firefox and things like that. And you click on this, and you is that an accurate representation of what's going on in the machine? Absolutely not. It's almost nothing to do with the zeros and ones of machine language, and which has almost nothing to do, very little to do with the little flashes of electricity going on in those gates, you know, on and off states. Actually, what is happening in the machine is very different from what you see on the screen. And if you were shown what's happening in the machine and asked to deal with that, you couldn't get any work done on a computer. So the whole thing is systematized and brought to you as as little representations, little icons which are pictures and easy to handle for you. And then you get your work done. Our nervous system, according to the latest thinking, functions in exactly the same way. It has, what you see has nothing to do with the world outside. Very little to do with the world outside. But it's a good handy way of dealing with the world. It's a good representation for consciousness to interact with. Um, this world, whatever it's there. So Anyway, that's, that's the physicalist approach. Physicalist, materialist, reductionist approach is at that point now. That I am taking only one thing out of the whole, whole picture. That we are not experiencing the world as it is. We are experiencing our own minds. Now where are we? We thought we were in a physical world. Now we, we think, we begin to understand. We inhabit a world of mind. Of representation. What's out there, we don't know. Kant would approve, Immanuel Kant who would thoroughly approve. says that we are just seeing a structure put up by our own minds. We are at the second level now. Physical world, we have abandoned it. Now we have moved to the level of mind. One more step, which modern science, psychology, philosophy does not understand so far. Advaita Vedanta will tell you this. So you are experiencing your own mind. It's thoughts, feelings, perceptions, everything in your mind only. All of it is lit up by awareness. If it were not lit up by awareness, none of it would be experienceable. I cannot spend time to explain this much further. I just leave it at that. We have been discussing this on and off a lot of times. Consciousness lights up the whole thing. Not only that, Vedanta says consciousness gives existence to all these things which are there in your mind. Because without consciousness they would just be Not experienceable and not even existing. It's like, for example, pain or excitement. If you are aware of the pain, you can claim honestly, I am in pain. Can you think of this statement? I am in great pain, but of course I don't feel it. You are laughing because it's a ridiculous statement. Pain is something which is when it is there, it must be experienceable. If it is experienceable, it is there. But the two go together, experiencibility and existence of pain. If you remove one, there is no pain but I am experiencing a lot of pain, that's ridiculous. Or there is a lot of pain but I am not experiencing any of it, that's ridiculous. Notice for pain, existence and awareness go together. Advaita Vedanta is a good example. Advaita Vedanta is saying it's exactly the same for everything in your mind. Their existence and awareness go together. That existence and awareness is lent by you, the consciousness, the background consciousness. And therefore, whatever you are experiencing, while exp- as if we are experiencing a physical world out there, you are experiencing nothing but consciousness, you yourself, in the guise of so many names and forms. That's the entire teaching of Advaita. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. So it's not a mere mind game. If it was a mind game, then all of samsara is a mind game. And enlightenment is a mind game. But not mere under any circumstance. That's most important. That's central to our human experiences. Let me tell you a little story. Um, Swami Nandaji was the head of the uh, Vedanta Society of Boston in Massachusetts many years ago. Some of you may have seen him. Um, he was a disciple of Swami Akhandananda, one of the direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna. So this is a story. We saw him only a few times when he visited India towards the end of his life. The story, which uh, in which he narrates how he got, he was initiated or not initiated by Swami Akhandananda You know, initiation means getting a mantra. So Swami Sarvagatananda at that time he was a brahmachari. He was uh, a novice, not yet a Swami. And he had gone to Swami Akhandananda in Sargachi, in the ashram in Murshidabad in Bengal. So Swami Akhandananda was there, a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. And this young man, he went as a novice to become a monk. He was under training. Somebody told him, have you taken Mantra Diksha initiation? He said, oh, I haven't. Go and ask Swami Akhandananda for Mantra Diksha initiation. So all this is what he told us, I mean, this, this Swami at the end of his life. He went and asked, and akhandanji said, what do you want? There are many funny things he told us, uh, Swami Sarbhagatananda, because, see, for example, that was an orphanage started by Swami Akhandananda for little uh, boys with no mother and father. And the boys were mischievous, uh, uh, <laughs> and this young man, he was from the south of India, from Karnataka, I think. Um, and he had gone to, this was Bengal, he had gone to Bengal. And these boys were teaching him Bengali. And they were mischievous, of course they were teaching him wrong things. <laughs> <laughs> they were teaching him. Um, so uh, Maharaj, uh, repeat after me, they'll tell the Bengali word for the ear and say, here, ear, <laughs> nose. In Bengali they would say, uh, Maharaj, the uh, uh, nark <laughs> in Bengali. Anyway, so one day he went to Swami Akhandananda and asked for the mantra. He goes, what do you want? I want. I heard that you give the mantra initiation. I would like to be initiated by you. And Swami Akhandananda said, "Sit, sit, and just sit and meditate." Swami Sarvagatanji said, "I didn't know how to meditate, but anyway, the Swami is telling me, so I just sat quietly with my eyes closed, and the mind became calm and inward, you know. And uh, after some time, Swami Akhandananda said, "What are you seeing?" What do you experience? And Swami sarvagatananda who was a brahmachari at that time, he said, I see that everything is mind. It's all ideas. It's mind. Meditate more. More. Sat quietly for some time. After some time, Swami Akhandanda asked, What do you see now? I see that it is all consciousness. He said, good. You can go now. He got up and went. He was in a stunned mood, you know. And even when he was telling this, the brahmacharis who were there in Belur 60 years after the event, they told me—I I heard it secondhand. They told me that the whole room became surcharged with emotion. You know, when he narrated something that had happened 60 years ago, and uh, everybody was quiet for for a long time. Then a few days later, he suddenly thought, "But I didn't get the mantra." So he went back to Swami Akhandananda and said. Uh, Swami, what is it now? You didn't give me the mantra. Swami Akhandananda said, Oh, whatever had to be done has been done. It's done for you. Go. (laughs) Now, this Swami, who came many years later to the United States and was the head of the center and gave the mantra to so many people, never ever received the mantra in his whole life. Many people don't know that. (laughs) He was not initiated. Instead of the mantra, he just got enlightenment directly. (laughs) (laughs) So this is an interesting thing. Physical world, the three steps, you see. Physical world, we think this is real. Reduce it to mind and see. Just spend some time there and see how actually we experience nothing but mind. And mind to consciousness. Notice all thoughts, feelings, good, bad, all the things that we experience including the so-called nothingness of deep sleep, are all appearances and disappearances to awareness, which must be our real identity. That thou art. All right. There's a variation of this. Olivia, she asks that, um, so the ultimate reality is beyond any characteristics. And yet we read that it is Um, blissful so with ultimate reality Brahman must be must not be happy, sad or anything like that and yet you see ananda, blissful so Brahman is very happy no happy, sad remembering, forgetting, desiring hating, these are all at the level of the mind And they are all illumined and lit up and experienced because of awareness of consciousness. This distinction between consciousness and mind must be made. In In the mind itself, in your intellect, the difference between awareness and what awareness experiences. This distinction is crucial for understanding Vedanta. Why Vedanta? It is crucial for understanding Sankhya. So happiness is in the mind. Then why is Brahman called ananda bliss? Not blissful. Ananda bliss itself. It's like this. Swami Vivekananda said. Not that it exists. It means with capital I. it, that ultimate reality. Not that it exists. It is existence itself. It's more than a thing which exists. Not that it knows. It is knowledge itself. Which means it's consciousness. And not that it is happy. It is happiness itself. That's one way of putting it. Another way of putting it is, one teacher said, this confusion can be prevented if you translate anandam bliss, not as bliss or happiness, but as purnatwam, completeness, infinitude, limitlessness. That limitlessness has to be happiness. When you experience that limitlessness, that limitlessness, when it is experienced in my mind, the reaction will be fulfillment, joy, peace, and kind of unshakable. Um, and a very pure and elevated uh, happiness but that happiness is also in the mind it's not Brahman itself Brahman itself is, is limitlessness I have given a talk about this this is discussed in the Upanishads uh, in a section called Ananda Mimamsa in Taittiriya Upanishad in the second chapter I think the eighth section of second chapter it's called Ananda Mimamsa a calculus of happiness <laughs> very interesting uh, section Does Brahman exist? One answer is yes But a deeper answer is no, no, no It is existence itself It more than exists It's not a thing which exists It is the very existence of things And So that's just play on words But it's not difficult to understand The example which I gave about Ornaments and gold So you have got A necklace And a bracelet And um, um, a ring They are all made of gold and if you ask, is gold a type of ornament, then you have to say, no, 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 gold is not a kind of ornament, it's not a fourth kind of ornament. And so then gold doesn't exist because only ornaments exist. No, gold exists in a deeper sense than ornaments exist because the very existence of these jewels, these ornaments, it depends on gold. Gold is the existence of these two. Exactly like that, Brahman is the existence of this universe. This universe has a lower category of existence than Brahman. So, anyway, similarly, so Brahman is existence itself. It's not a thing which exists. Similarly, Brahman is bliss itself. It's not a feeling of happiness. Yeah. The last question was. Um, could you repeat the last, last question? Mahendesh? Well, actually... The third one? Yeah,
1: heard, um. I have heard many times that Brahman, God, Atman, the Self, ultimate reality is Nirguna, which means it has no characteristics. I think like I answered I have, that also. That, that you, yeah. you answered, right. Yes, right. Yeah. right.
0: So, the awareness itself or Brahman itself has no characteristic of its own but when it puts on names and forms it takes on characteristics and eh? it becomes Hitler or Mother Teresa. <laughs> Swami Vivekananda he says that existence is prior to everything else then we color it with good and bad and we say good or sinful and bad but it's that existence first and then it, then we talk about good and bad. I hope this has given you enough food for thought. Do you have questions? Can you raise your hand? This young man there, come here. Tell us your name and ask the question. Namaskaram Swamiji. My name is Sumiran, namaskaram everyone. Um, One of the biggest challenge I face on seeking enlightenment is family and friends. When we consider everything as one, the concept of family or friends seem discriminatory by itself and with limited identity. Is there a middle ground a right balance to still maintain the relationship and be enlightened? Yes, that's a good question, by the way this question is fixed, the reason is I met him this morning while walking in the park, Central Park, <laughs> he was walking there and he says I'm going to ask a question, I said all right you I'll raise your hand, I'll, go, I'll call on you, <laughs> so it was, it was fixed. Yes, again, from the perspective of Brahman or Atman, it is all one. Who is your uh, friend or enemy when it's all one? Uh, whom to hate? Whom will you condemn when it is, uh, it's all but one? Um, similarly for family and not family, uh, this is mine and this is not mine. These are mine and these are not mine. This is definitely, it comes from a perspective of ignorance. But, after enlightenment, when you realize it is all one reality, after that you are still back in this identity, this this Sumeran identity. And from that perspective, there will be somebody whom you call dad and mom, somebody you call a friend, somebody you call a professor or colleague. And you can still play that role, but now you are aware of a much deeper level of truth. (laughs) You know at that deeper level of truth these differences disappear and you are one. So from that perspective you act in the world. What will happen then? These deep likes and dislikes will disappear. You have a deep sense of identity with everybody. It's a wonderful way of living actually. You still fulfill your role. You still do whatever has to be done. You go to work and you learn and you study and you take care of people you have to take care of. But... Deep inside, there is this feeling of oneness with everybody. Swami Vivekananda said, what will happen when you uh, realize this? You know, like vividly when you feel this. He said this world itself, he said, only if, if only a fraction of the population of this world were to realize this truth, society would be transformed into heaven, heaven on earth itself. Then gods would work with gods, gods would play with gods, gods would be loving gods. That's, that's the language he puts it in. So yes, Um, even if I am not there, I can simulate that perspective and try to live accordingly. When you try to live accordingly, you will notice something. All ethics, love, unselfishness, they flow from that perspective. It's yes. You had a question. We'll take one more question, the gentleman there. I'll come to you later.
2: My name is Girish. Um, I had a question about Maya, I hope you don't say, ask another question. But uh, Maya is defined both as unreal as well as not unreal, which would appear to violate the law of the excluded middle. Excluded middle. But am I falling, so it would mean that Maya is illogical. Yeah. But am I falling into the fallacy of the excluded middle which means that not unreal is not the opposite of unreal. Are there other alternatives? Alright.
0: It's a much more difficult question. You ask what is Brahman? Easy. What do they say? Easy peasy. <laughs> but if you ask Maya, it's really a difficult question. And you see, one of the first difficulties is this. But this exact Sanskrit phrasing is sad bhyam anirvachanyam it is not unreal and it is not real but actually an accurate translation would be you cannot express it as being real you cannot express it as being unreal anirvachanyam means cannot be put into an expression cannot be linguistically expressed as it cannot be determined as real cannot be determined as unreal or in simpler language you cannot say that maya exists Seeing that only Brahman exists from an Advaitic perspective. You cannot say that Maya does not exist. Seeing that it makes all this difference. So from a very strict philosophical point of view, Maya is not a second reality apart from Brahman. From a practical point of view, you have to admit the efficacy of Maya. Everything here we see is in the realm of Maya. Um, All that exists here is the wood. Because what I am touching is wood, what you weigh is wood But can you say that the table, the lectern does not exist, the podium does not exist? If I say apart from the wood, it does not exist And say yes, but there is a shape to the, to the podium There is a function, you are able to put your hands on it and you, know, you can use it There is a name podium which is different from the name wood So you have a different label, a different form and different function now, all of this, Nama, Rupa, Vyavahara in Sanskrit, This is; uh, th- these are the constituents of Maya. Now, does it violate the uh, rule of the excluded m- middle? R- rule of excluded middle is one of the fundamental uh, rules of, um, I would say, Aristotelian logic. Um, where it says a thing has to be either A or not A. There can't be any other third middle possibility. Notice that uh, the way it is phrased, It's not saying that, uh, um, it's not not asking for another possibility. It's just saying that it cannot be expressed as A, it cannot be expressed as not A. That's a weaker way of saying it. It's not actually directly violating. If it said um, that it is both A and not A, that is contradictory. But it's not saying that it both exists and does not exist. It doesn't say that it just says it cannot be expressed as existence it cannot be expressed as non-existence and that's where you leave it <laughs> they actually say in uttarakhand in the himalayas they will say swami that means some old monk don't try to establish maya try try to cut. come out from cut it maya. cut cut it or come out of maya establishing maya, maya is putting it on firm foundations then you're trapped if you can really establish there is something called Maya, then you're trapped in it because it's real. Uh, in Hindi they say, kijiye, isko katiye. Don't try to establish. And how do you cut it? When you investigate it, when you investigate it, it disappears. When you investigate, it seems to be that there, yes, there is wood and there is a, a podium, but when you investigate it logically, when you say is, what does is mean? What I touch, what I weigh, what we see, what, what I'm saying, uh, you know, what I'm hitting here. It's all, it's wood only. The whole thing is wo- is wo- wood. And what you call name and form and function is attributed to wood, is imputed. Imputation is another good word. And that is Maya. Okay, it's a technical question, but um, I'm just seeing none of the ladies are asking, but anyway, <laughs> you can come. Then we'll take a question from the internet audience.
2: Namaskaram Swamiji. Um, I'm trying to- recon- oh, Tell us your name. My name is Praveen. Praveen. Um, thank you for all the education so far. I'm trying to reconcile some of the concepts, you know, you talk about with some of the other things that we see, for example, Kundalini Shakti, or some of the Siddhis, even Shankaracharya went through Parakaya Pravesha, so he left his body, got into something else. Third thing is there is also a concept that says you have to be different from the one in order to experience. For example, examples quoted are only if you are different from sugar, you can taste the sweetness of sugar. You can't be the sugar and taste the or know the sweetness of sugar. So how do you uh, reconcile this? Anyhow,
0: right? Answer one word answer from Advaita perspective is it's all Maya. <laughs> See Advaita is very easy. You are Brahman. Brahman is the only reality. What about this, that and the other thing? Oh, it's all Maya. Somebody said, the problem with Shankara is it's like he flew on an aeroplane. So when you fly on an aeroplane across the country, you miss everything that's beneath you. You get your destination. You have reached the, uh, the highest, what you wanted, enlightenment. But the, all the vast expanse and variety and infinitude of Maya, you miss all of that because you have jumped beyond it. But in between, in the realm of Maya, there is a lot which which is yet to be discovered. What we call the miraculous, the siddhis you are talking about, from from a yogic perspective. That's why you see immediately you change philosophies from Advaita to Yoga, Patanjali Yoga, or to Tantra. These are different philosophical systems. What they do is, first of all, they take Maya to be real, at least provisionally real. And then investigate that and use that. (laughs) A lot of what we might call miraculous, from a yogic perspective, there is nothing miraculous, it's all natural, it's just we don't know it yet. And if you investigate it, the yogis investigated these things, they found extraordinary potentialities and powers in the body, in the mind, which they then harnessed towards enlightenment. So this explains, that's why you see people who do spiritual practices sadhana, they come across these extraordinary phenomena. Do they exist? There are, you know, people have tried it, experimented, Um, there have been labs on parapsychology and uh, it's still, what do they say, jury is still out (laughs) Uh, on it. So we don't know. The one problem with these experiments is it's done on ordinary folk. So people who have not cultivated it. But if you select your sample, to maybe a select group of yogis or lamas, which they did, actually the Dalai Lama insisted when the mind-life dialogues, he said, when you're going to talk about the efficacy of meditation, don't take the population as a whole, you have to take people who have been like veteran meditators, beginning beginners and people who do not meditate, then only you can, but where do you get veteran meditators? First of all, they'll not be willing to uh, submit to experiments. So Dalai Lama actually volunteered some of his lamas that you go and take part. And they had wonderful results coming out on the efficacy of meditation. Um, similarly, I have seen it myself. Yeah, at least a few instances. Extraordinary. There's this person who claimed to be able to read minds. He demonstrated some of it. And some of it, you can be, you know, it's slate of hand. It's um, any good magician can do that. So I thought, just for my own sake, uh, to satisfy myself, uh, I'll ask him. Just a little experiment which will not satisfy anybody else, but just me. Simplest experiments are the most difficult. That that means, uh, so there are no way of manipulating. So I just went up to him and said, what am I thinking now? And he told me straight away. (laughs) It was like the very hair on your body will stand on (laughs) 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 end. Now how do you explain that? That you can't explain. So it's possible. It's possible. I've seen that in um, some very senior monks. Extraordinary. One of, swami Vireshwaranji was there. He was the president of the Ramakrishna order, the 10th president. I saw him just once when I was a little kid. One of the Swamis who served him, who worked under him when he was the president. So this Swami, he told me that we kept hearing that the Swami, Swami he could actually read the minds, oh my God, I'm telling this and it will go out on the internet because the person I'm talking about, he's t- still alive. Virishwangi has passed on. <laughs> anyway, so he said that I wanted to test for myself. whether Does he really read your mind? So one day, the, those who have gone to Belurmat, you know, President Maharaj sits there and everybody comes and they bow down, they talk to him. And there are some assistant monks, younger monks, who stand behind him. So this Swami was on duty that day. He was standing behind virishwan Those who have seen Virishwanji, you know, he's a tiny, tiny uh, man. His, when he passed away, he was 26 kgs, I think. 50 pounds. Tiny. And, and yet, people said that it's like almost every cell of his body was a computer chip or something. It was so extraordinarily aware. Uh, so he was sitting there. And people were filing past. And this Swami was standing behind... Swami Birishwarananda, and thinking all sorts of un-monk-like thoughts. (laughs) Just standing and thinking. All sorts of nonsense. After a few seconds of that, maybe a minute, suddenly the Swami who is sitting there looks up at him and says, Enough! (laughs) Enough of testing me. And then looks back again, looks at the... (laughs) What do you say to that? Swami Premananda, another one of the direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, um, who is calling the young monks and novices that come, come down from the temple. Uh, we have to you know, cut the vegetables for the noon meal and back to kitchen work. And the monks are in meditation and think Swami Brahmananda put them up to it. You have come here for meditation. and mon- He is going to make you work in the kitchen. Uh, so uh, don't listen to him. You meditate. Sit here and meditate. And so the younger monks were sitting there. And the Swami is calling from downstairs. And then he understood what was going on there. He said, all right, you lot go and medit- go on meditating. But if I see the noise of the marketplace rising in your minds, I will go <laughs> and pull you down by your ears and make, bring you back to work here. I'll do all the work myself. You can go and meditate. Which means he's, he's saying that I can see what's going on in your minds. That autobiography of a yogi, uh, Swami um, Paramahamsa Yogananda, he says when he was a novice in Calcutta in the monastery he's sitting upstairs in the old building and meditating and his guru Sri Tishwar Giri he called from downstairs come here and sweep the courtyard help me and he says i was sitting and meditating and grumbling in my own mind the old man keeps telling me to meditate and here i am meditating and he's now disturbing me he's asking me to go and sweep the courtyard well i won't respond i won't i'll sit quiet and the moment he thought this the response came from below and this guru shouted that uh, if you were too good for this world you wouldn't be in it. Come down here and, and help me <laughs> sweep this courtyard. <laughs> yeah. So tantric practices, um, kundalini yoga all of these are Advaita is right, Shankara is right they are all part of Maya but that, that does not mean they are invalid. They are very useful. And the problem is, we are stuck in some, some corner of Maya, and we need these technologies to help us. So Shankara would not be against any of these techniques. Yeah. All right. Um, did we have three, three questions from the audience yet? Can we have an internet question? Yes. Uh,
1: this is a question from Devan Shu on the Bhagavad Gita. In the 18th chapter, verse 59, 60, and 61 of the Gita, Sri Krishna says to Arjuna that if thou in thy vanity thinkest of avoiding this fight, thy will will shall not be fulfilled, for nature herself will compel thee. O Arjuna, thy duty binds thee. From thine own nature has it arisen, And that which in thy delusion thou desire not to do, that very thing thou shalt do, thou art helpless. God dwells in the hearts of all beings, O Arjuna. He causes them to revolve, as it were, on a wheel by his mystic power. The summed up meaning of all the three verses in that God himself, by his Prakrati aspect, has compelled Arjuna to take in the action of war. So, but then Sri Krishna says in verse 1863, thus the knowledge, the mystery of mysteries, has been declared to you by me. Reflecting on it fully, do what you will. He asks Arjuna to do what he thinks is right according to his will. How can one act freely if already predetermined by the supreme force? If Arjuna is already predestined to kill all his enemies, then where is his free will left to participate?
0: You're taking me straight back to a classroom in at Harvard. This is exactly the question which was being dis- uh, discussed there. <laughs> you might think that they don't discuss such, such subjects there, not at all. Um, we're studying the Bhagavad Gita, and in another course at the, in the at the Emerson Building in the Philosophy Department, this question of free will versus determinism—it's an old, old question. This is being discussed. So exactly the same question, actually. And what answer? No answer. They have, we haven't come across answers in thousands of years of Southeast and West. But anyway, what is the question? The question is: Krishna is saying. That everything here, you think, oh Arjuna, you think you will not fight. But nature, Prakriti will compel you into action. You think you are going to run away from this fight and sit in a mountain cave and meditate. You know what you will, you can do that. But you know what you will meditate upon? Those Kauravas are rascals. When I had the chance, I should have really (laughs) trashed them, you know. Uh, Your mind will dwell. You think you are going to meditate on the Atman and Brahman and it won't work that way. So you cannot escape action because you are compelled into action by nature. Another place Sri Krishna says nobody can sit still even for a moment without action. This body is con- continuously moving and changing. Mind is moving and changing all the time. Uh, helplessly you will be impelled into action. So by prakriti, by nature we are impelled into action helplessly. There's no, um, uh, you know, there is no option, to. there is no opting out of it. Another thing Sri Krishna says, God in the heart of all beings makes us move like like puppets on a machine. That's what he says. Uh, So like puppets on a machine, we are controlled by God in our hearts. So God is within all of us and controls everything that we do. So this seems to, whether it's prakriti or God, nature or God, it seems to say there is no free will. There is only an illusion. We think we are free, but we are not free. And today he would have said, instead of nature he would have said, neuroscience tells us that uh, we have no free will, it's, it's, everything is predetermined. Uh, on the other hand, at the end of the Bhagavad Gita he says, I have told you what I wanted to tell you, now do as you will. So can I do as I will or can I not do it? Is there free will or is there no free will? First answer, yes there is free will. Take it for granted and act accordingly. Without free will, none of this makes sense. Spiritual practice, if I were not free to do spiritual practice, then how is it, what's the use of attending Vedanta classes? How would I even decide to come to a Vedanta class or start meditating or doing yoga or praying? All of these decisions, they assume, they presume free will. So one of the professors there, we are saying that, imagine if there were no free will, then the entire legal system would collapse. Harvard Law School would go out of business. Because the entire legal system is predicated on this assumption that the criminal does wrong things freely. If somebody put a gun to your head and uh, forced you to steal some money, your blame would be much less because you were forced. The court would take that into account. You did not do so freely. You could not blame people, you could not charge them with crimes if, they were, if there was no free will. Conversely, conversely, there would be no reward, there would be no praise, there would be no goodness Also, if there were no free. Unless you freely choose, if somebody makes, puts a gun to your head and makes you donate all your money to the children's fund in UNICEF. Now, is, are you a very good person? Not necessarily. <laughs> You might be a cowardly person, <laughs> but you can't claim that, look at me, I'm such, a, such so generous, but the gun was to my head. So you cannot claim any kind of uh, recognition, reward um, uh, 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 of goodness. You cannot claim goodness without free will. You cannot blame uh, without free will. There can be no crime without free will. So a l- lot of our, our society entirely depends on free will. Look at the arguments used in court to save people from uh, criminal charges, Uh, the plea of insanity for example. What is the plea of insanity? This person cannot choose to exercise his or her free will and therefore you should not be blamed because there are other extenuating circumstances. So free will is essential to the functioning of our, our, our life, our civilization and spiritual life. So all spiritual systems, all religions, they assume free will. It's only when you can freely decide to do something that spiritual practice becomes possible. In fact, some of them go further. So for, uh, for example, in Christian theology, whole existence of evil. How, why is there evil in, in God's world? God is not to blame. God gave us free will and we freely chose to misuse that free will and we created evil. That's one answer. The theory of karma is not very different from that you see. We have free will and we exercise it in doing our karma and we get the result of that karma. So free will is assumed. That's my first answer. Don't worry, I'm going to abandon all of this. Next. (laughs) First answer is that yes, there is free will and please act and behave as if you are free. You say as if. That takes us to the second answer. Every religion... And today neuroscience also says that there is no free will. It's actually uh, an illusion that we have, that we have free will at at a deeper level. First level is still there. When you leave this hall, please behave as if you have got free will. (laughs) But whether you examine it scientifically, science is, we are talking about a deterministic universe. Even with quantum mechanics and all, we're still talking about a deterministic universe. Even with probabilistic physics, still it's a deterministic universe in some sense or the other. Free will doesn't make sense in such a universe. So there are so many theories discussing this. And desperate attempts to combine free will and determinism. They call them compatibilist theories. And there are a whole bunch of theories. Books and books have been written on this. They've all failed. So at a deeper level... Sri Krishna is saying, Sri Ramakrishna is saying, every religion says, it's ultimately God's will, not your free will. Even your free will, is so-called free will, is granted to you. Uh, you can cash it in, but it's granted to you by God. That story in the, in the gospel, where the cow is tied to a tree, when the question of free will is being discussed. So the farmer ties the cow to a tree and gives it a certain length of rope. And, if, and the, within the radius afforded by that length of rope, the cow can graze and, and she can eat grass and or can sit, simply sit still and whisk its tail, you know like <laughs> If the cow pulls against the rope, the farmer may come and give it some more rope, or may untie it and take it to a greener pasture. So within that radius afforded by the rope, the cow has some freedom. But even that radius is also controlled by the farmer. Similarly, we have free will for practical purposes, but even that is determined by, call it God or Prakriti, nature. When you say Prakriti, when Krishna says Prakriti, then modern science will have nothing to object there. Yes, it is nature which determines the limits of our freedom. Finally, third level, yes. So first answer was yes, there is free will. Deeper answer, no. Third, last level, final, deep. Deepest level? Yes, again. Swami Vivekananda says that there is freedom, no freedom of the will, but there is freedom when you are enlightened, when you realize yourself as Brahman, the absolute, that's always free. And through Maya, Ishwara creates this universe out of freedom completely. It's not deterministic that way. So at the level of enlightenment, you ha- you are free. It's not that you have free will, but you have freedom. So what comes of all of this, can you, can you put it to, all together? Um, Arindam Chakravarti, the professor uh, who gave a talk here last year, in his beautiful article, Why pray to a God who can hear the anklets on an ant's feet? Mm-hmm. It's actually a commentary on a line from the, from the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. Sri Ramakrishna says, The Lord hears the jingling of the anklets. Now you have to imagine, um, children in uh, India, the, uh, little boys and girls, they, they put anklets on their ankles. So they make little jingling sounds when they walk. Nowadays it's been replaced by these shoes, which squeak and flashlights when the k- k- kids, kids walk. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: now imagine an ant, so tiny, and its feet are even more tiny. Now if you had to design anklets for the feet of the ant, How tiny they would be. But God can hear the sound of the anklets in the ants feet. What it means is God knows everything. What's in our heart. It's just the standard idea of God knowing everything. What's in our heart. Now Arindam Chakravarti asks. Why pray to such a God? If God knows everything. Why do you have to pray? God knows what we need. No. Like the Bible says. Ask. And it shall be given. You have to knock and it shall be opened. You have to ask. That's an exercise of your free will. So what he says finally is. Use the illusion of the free will at the, at the first level. And I feel I have free will. Use the illusion. Recognizing that actually it's not free will. It's God all, all the way through. So what is the best use of that appearance of free will? It is to continuously pray and surrender to God. The Sanskrit Namaha. He says, the philosopher says, Namah means, means salutations. But what does it mean? He splits it up, the Sanskrit, into Na mama, not mine, not I, thou my lord, thou my lord. To continuously recognize this in our day to day lives, in our thoughts, in our actions, and to surrender to this absolutely, this is the reality, to know this. Even a Jivan Mukta, who is an enlightened person, as far as the life of this particular body and personality is concerned, that person lives a life of complete surrender to God. For that person it's easy, because that person sees clearly that everything in this realm of name and form is the Lord's doing. For us it may be difficult, because we are only aware of the name and form. We are not aware of the vastness behind. Therefore we are We are terrified. When disease comes, unhappiness comes, old age comes. Because this, it's threatening this tiny existence which I think to be my existence. This is not our existence. There's a deeper existence behind it which is immortal and perfect. So free will, yes, it's there. No, it's not there. And yes, it's there. Uh, and knowing this, please, uh, we, we live our lives accordingly. Yes, Subrata Yes, please come.
2: Namaskar, Samiji. Tell us uh, your name. Uh, my name is Rajurshi. Rajarshi. Um, uh, I want to thank uh, for uh, inviting me. This is my first time here, so please uh, apologize uh, if my uh, question is comes from ignorance. No, all our questions come from ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so um, one of the uh, you know uh, my my understanding of Vedanta comes mainly from YouTube, particularly uh, watching your video videos, and I guess probably it's one of the most popular uh, YouTube videos. Uh, this is your uh, 2000 presentation at uh, Kanpur IIT, um, I think two and a half million views. So that's I, that's something that I have uh, seen few times, and that's and. So you are responsible for a good deal of the two and a half million. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. Right. Uh, so, so my questions are uh, at somewhat at a meta level, and if I may have a few minutes, to k- I want to kind of not too much. We have uh, to compress it. Okay. okay. So, so the first question would be that you know since 2014, uh, you have had you know any one of us, and you have had other experiences, learned in uh, read, learned new things. If you were to give that, give talk about Mandukya Upanishad again, how would it be different? How how would that pres- this new presentation incorporate new ideas, new experiences, and how would you fold that in? And I guess the basis of the question is, uh, in this philosophy, how does it incorporate new ideas? Is it right. is it a living philosophy or is it correct? You know, this is this is this is it right? Right, right. The answer is both. This is it, but
0: it's also a living philosophy. The teaching is the same thing which has been there for thousands of years. What you find in the Mandukya Upanishad, which is thousands of years old, part of the Atharvana Veda. It's the same thing that I'm talking about in, in the 21st century at IIT Kanpur and just this earlier this year at the Bahamas, Shivananda Yoga Ashram. Yes. So yes, it is the same message. But does it incorporate new discoveries, new points of view? Certainly it does. And I'll just give you one example, the Mandukya Upanishad itself. If you actually look at the history of Indian philosophy, the actual textual history of Indian philosophy, you will see Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, is uh, what is called a uh, Johnny-come-lately. Yeah, that's, that's the phrase. It appears in a major form quite late. The early players in this field are um, Sankhya and Nyaya uh, and various schools of Buddhism, Jainism, uh, Mimamsa. These are the schools which are obvious from the texts. So the arguments between the Buddhists and uh, their Hindu opponents, they were Hindu dualists, the Nyaya school mostly. Uh, Later on, it was Kumari Labhatta of the Mimamsa school. Nowhere do you really see them interacting with Advaitins. The first major Advaitic text which is available today, available today, quite apart from the Upanishads, which are there, which are much older. Uh, but the philosophical text is the Mandukya Karika of Gaudapada, so it, which is Gaudapada's commentary on the Mandukya Upanishad. Now this is going somewhere, which is about 1400 years ago Just before Shankaracharya Couple of hundred years before that There was a Buddhist Shunyavadi philosopher, Bhaviveka And one of his texts, a rare text, I found in the Widener Library in, uh, in Harvard It's been recently translated into English Nobody reads it It's It's very obscure but what struck me was, one there are two chapters, refutation of Sankhya, refutation of Vedanta. And yet this is 200 years before Gaudapada wrote the Karika. Now when you read the Vedanta that is presented for refutation there, it's based on the Purusha Suktam, it's based on the Upanishads, some parts of the Vedas. And it's very easily torn apart by the Buddhists because um, you are saying things like Brahman is changeless and here is this world of change how do you reconcile this? how can this living person born and dying and subject to suffering how can he be the perfect blissful Brahman? so and then he proceeds this is 200 years before Gaurapada, 300 years before Gaurapada when you come to 300 years later Advaita is being presented by Gaurapada by writing the commentary on the Mandukya Upanishad. You find all these things have been incorporated and dealt with already. What did they do? They took in the two levels of truth. You are talking about a blissful, uh, absolute, unchanging reality. That's Paramarthika, the absolute level of truth. And this Person who is born and suffering and dying, that's called Vyavaharika, the transactional empirical level of truth. The absolute level of truth is the real truth. This is appearance. In between is Maya. All these things are not there in the presentation 300 years ago, before Gaudapada. All these things are very much there in the presentation of Gaudapada. Now you see what has happened in between. Be- because of this vigorous attacks from the Buddhists, what Gaudapada did was he looked at them and gave a Vedantic response. Incorporating a lot of DNA from the Buddhists. Two levels of truth. One level is an appearance, one is the ultimate reality. For the Buddhist, the ultimate reality is shunyam, the void. And the level of uh, appearance is name and form. Instead of the void, Mandukip or Gaudapada puts Purnam, the infinity. Infinity is the level of truth, uh, ultimate level of truth. And this, what we experience, is an appearance based on that infinity. Now you have the The tools and the structure which can resist and respond to the Buddhist attack. Did you see how it evolved over 300 years? From Mandukya Upanishad to Mandukya Karika. Huge step forward. Many things have been incorporated there. None of them violate the basic structure. But now what has happened is the basic structure of Brahman and the world now begin to look look viable and reasonable now. Not incoherent. The way Bhaviveka makes it out to be. And so over the centuries it becomes a... Very powerful system, this continuous process of dialectical attack and response, and creating um, new ways of looking at the same truth. So that was uh, that was then. Move forward a thousand years, Vivekananda. So he says he says in one place this philosophy, which means Advaita Vedanta, has saved India twice in the past. One from the um, he talks about. Uh, uh, the, the, I think the Buddhist challenge and he talks about the uh, I think the ritualists, the Mimamsakas challenge. And once again he says it, it is it, uh, what Sri Ramakrishna and I have done. He has brought forth for this philosophy in a new form. Incorporating the challenges of this modern world in many ways. M- practical Vedanta. How is it, we are a very realistic world. We, we, the society is very important to us. How does your Vedanta respond? Is it the monastic, renounce the world, sit in a cave, Shankaracharya saying world is false, world Brahman alone is real. Is it that alone? That does not seem to be capable of responding to the requirements of the modern world. What about science? What about uh, uh, human rights and um, gender equality and uh, um, democracy, uh, you see, all the challenges thrown up by modern society. The new response is in the form of uh, Swami Vivekananda. Which is an extraordinary liberal, open, rational presentation of what Shankara said. Which is a re- reformulation of what Gaudapada said. Which is a reformulation of what was there in the Upanishad itself. Right, And, and, and I see. So we are studying different systems of thought. I can see it from an Advaitic perspective that how much Advaita has to contribute to questions which even now at at the highest level of academia, they're struggling with philosophy of mind. I'm taking a course there. Uh, So, you know what we're discussing here is more more or less in a little more technical language is exactly what is being discussed there. How do I know that the world is real? We start with Descartes and uh, and we're reading Descartes and... uh, um, Carnap, Rudolf Carnap, the Vienna Circle, and and uh, Gilbert Ryle, Oxford, common uh, the uh, common language philosophers, language philosophers of uh, Oxford, Oxford in the 60s. They are still light years away from the uh, insights. Which I'm not saying only Vedanta, the Buddhist philosophers, the Sankhian philosophers, Advaita philosophers. They already made these many many of these breakthroughs, and we can translate at least some of these ideas into the modern conversation. Yes.
2: Um, so, you know, that, that's very, that's, uh, you know, I was saying that at a couple of, years so that answers my second question. Yes, questions. yes. Um, so, so, the other part I was curious about, and as a scientist and uh, dabbling in neuroscience, for example, um, you know, one of the examples that you started today's discussion was the idea of the question answering. And, you know, you gave the example of, gives you better understanding, yeah. gave the example of the post. post the, being driven into the ground. Driven into the ground. Um, and what if, if we had a way to, through whatever mechanism, perhaps science, neuroscience, if we had a way to quantify that understanding, that is when I say that I realize something, or when I say I understand something, there is a way that I could quantify it, right? So, So my understanding of something could be, I think I understand, but my understanding is less than perhaps yours. And what if there's a way to quantify that, say, say, let's say for now, say using neuroscience, new ideas in neuroscience. Would that help in some of the discussions we are having in terms of making things more quantitative and making, you right. know, ma- making the... I understand what you're saying.
0: But you are coming from an, a, a very scientific um, worldview. What Advaita will say is that, examine the presuppositions of that worldview. When we say, that which is measurable is real. See, ask yourself, where does that worldview come from? Where does it come from? The scientific method, the philosophy of science. For example, the people we are studying, uh, the logical positivists, Rudolf Carnap and on the Vienna circle, uh, Ernst Mach. These are the people who develop the philosophy behind the scientific method. So for them, verifiability and truth are the same. So for example, one of the things is, if, if a statement is verifiable, tell me a test, and if it, it, which it can either pass or fail. If you can tell me a, tra- a test, then that statement which you made, which can be testable, is a, a meaningful statement. If there is no test which can decide this way or that way, then that statement is meaningless and therefore his conclusion (laughs) all statements about God are nonsense or meaningless why they cannot be tested so but you see what is underneath this kind of an approach there is already the understanding that reality is out there it is measurable quantifiable testable but is that so so that also has to be questioned. Yes, quantifiability, testability, and our modern neuroscience, they can all help. Certainly, we are in the age of modern science, and especially neuroscience, and we should take the help of that, but also make a deeper search of, uh, of the assumptions underlying materialistic reductionism. One question, yes. Are they ready? Not yet, we got Just a um, question about- um, Tell us your name. And oh, Eitan.
2: Yes. Um, so a Buddhist question. Um, reading someone like David Loy on non-duality, yes. uh, who compares Buddhism with uh, um, Advaita Vedanta and other non-dual traditions, and a lot of the books, even uh, Professor Sharma, who you recommended in one of the books. Um, so it seems that the comparison is always with uh, uh with um, sort of um, two truths. I wanted to know, in your studies um, of Buddhism, have you dealt with things in the non-dual area, things like Dzogchen and Mahambudra? And what is your take on identical, similar, different? I know it's a big question, but uh, um, things in that area. Thank you. Right.
0: So the question is, um, he refers to David Loy's book on non-duality, where he compares non-dual, tra- uh, and explores non-dual traditions in Asian philosophies, especially Advaita Vedanta and um, uh, Zen also? Dogen. D- uh, Dogen. And Dzogchen Buddhism, Madhyamaka Buddhism. He talks about, he doesn't talk about Madhyamaka too much. But B- Buddhist non-dualism uh, with Advaitic non-dualism. Um, yes, so I spent some time, about four or five months studying with one of the leading experts, uh, Professor Garfield, Jay Garfield. Um, we studied uh, Indo-Tibetan Madhyamaka. So the texts of Tsongkhapa and uh, Mipham and uh, so some of the leading Tibetan commentators. So first of all, the, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the philosophy, uh, it's, it comes from two systems of Indian thought. One is the Madhyamaka Buddhism of Nagarjuna. I mentioned Bhaviveka. Bhaviveka, Chandrakirti, Buddha Palita, they are all... The school of Shunyavada, which means the school of the void, of the emptiness. The well, professor used to say, the emptiness people. So, <laughs> emptiness. And there's another school, the school of mind only or consciousness only, Vijnavada, The school of mind only school or consciousness only school. And it's a synthesis of the, of the two which you find in Tibetan Buddhism. So the philosophy followed by the Dalai Lama and uh, the the monks. And they have different schools and very subtle differences between them. I'll just make two comments here, one is what I had thought of it before these studies and what changed after this. I'll just sum up what I just uh, went through. My take on Madhyamaka and Vijñānavāda and the synthesis you find in Tibetan Buddhism is that it's a kind of Advaita Vedanta where the negative side is said, the world is an appearance, things are empty in themselves. What is the ultimate reality? They will call it Tattva, the reality. or But not reality as in a substantial reality. They will not mention what it is. So if you say the negative side of it, the world is an appearance, without saying the positive side of it, that there is an absolute reality, then that's what you get uh, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. For example, Madhyamaka and Vijnavada. That was my understanding. I was wrong. So <laughs> How did my understanding change? They talk about the Madhyamaka talks about two kinds of emptiness. One is the emptiness of the world, and another one is the emptiness of the self. This can be very uh, can be make you make a Vedantin feel uneasy, or even a Hindu feel uneasy, because we are used to a substantialist view of the self that there is an ultimate reality called the self or God. But remember, all of these, whether Hindu philosophies or Buddhist philosophies, these are technologies or methodologies for enlightenment for taking you beyond suffering and they come to a common understanding that our identification with this body-mind complex is at the root of our suffering. What Advaita Vedanta does, now this is my understanding, what happened in the class, two classes, one is Professor Garfield's Indo-Tibetan Madhyamaka, another one was Professor Parimal Patil's uh, Classical Indian Buddhism, the Sanskrit texts from about 180 AD to 1000 AD, so a thousand year period nearly. Um, two key insights I'll share with you one is that um, about the world Advaita Vedanta says it is actually Brahman appearing as this world with names and forms because of Maya it is actually the rope appearing as a snake and to say that there is only the snake and there is no rope behind it that seems silly Something must be real. That's our intuition. Yes, you can say what we are experiencing is false, but then there must be some reality behind it. It's only the reality which appears as a falsity. Without um, uh, uh, reality, how can it be falsity all the way down? Uh, That's our objection. So here is the insight. It can be. How? Um, Take an example. Money so dollars and cents and dimes uh, so are they the foundation of money not really they exist because our concept of money exists so they are just manifestations of a mutually interdependent interlocking system of constructions in our mind and when you Manifested in the world, it becomes dollars and cents and dimes and credit cards and electronic money and Bitcoin and whatnot. But none of them really are foundation. It's, will you say that because, uh, he put it this way, will you say that because you have these dollar uh, notes in your pocket, therefore there is money? No, it's the other way around. So money, the actual cash and coins are not the foundation on which money is based they are just manifestations of what is just an understanding a mutual they, so the word they used is use fancy words but uh, it's at, the, at its heart it's a very simple understanding uh, it, it is the Madhyamaka is talking about a coherentist anti-foundationalism <laughs> what it means is that there is no foundation ultimately to this universe but it's just things which are Coherent among each other, they they hang together nicely, but there's nothing that they hang on. You may not agree; it's a difficult thing to to wrap your mind around. But it's at least you must understand. It's understandable what they're trying to say. So, for example, they never they generally do not use the snake. They use snake rope example, but the example which is they use for the world outside is Chandrakirti's example: sheaves of hay, which when you arrange them, they all lean on each other. So you know, can you imagine lots of hair in bundles and stacks all leaning on each other? So the entire world, it leans on each other. There is no underlying foundation on to, it, to this. It's emptiness all the way through. This is one understanding. Without Brahman also, you can make sense of the world as coherentist anti-foundationalism. Okay. The second understanding is about the self. So from an Advaitic point of view, not the body, not the mind, witness consciousness, which is existence, consciousness, bliss. What they showed is that you deconstruct the body-mind and you see that none of this can be me. And then, then what is me? Don't ask that. None of of this can be me. Why are you asking more than this? What you thought was you. I'm showing you that it's not you. So Chandrakirti, there's something called Chandrakirti's chariot. So he says it's called a sevenfold reasoning, which Tibetan lamas actually spend years meditating on. What is the chariot? Today we might say an SUV, but what is the chariot? Chandrakirti asks. Um, is it the parts of the chariot? Is, it, is that the chariot? Is it the wheels and the nave and the axle? So, no, no, no. Those are the parts. That's not the chariot. So, is the chariot something apart from the parts? You just say that there is no space for the chari- your chariot in the uh, ashram. You can leave the parts outside, you can bring your chariot in. No, you can't do that. There is no chariot apart from the parts also. Uh, is, is, are the parts of the chariot something in which the chariot is kept? Like a bowl in which flowers are kept, so the, char- the parts are there, in that something called chariot is kept. No, no. Is it the other way around, the chariot is something in which the parts are kept? No, no, not like that. So sevenfold reasoning is going to show that there is no such thing as a chariot. Don't worry, your SUV will still be there (laughs) when you go out. And yet, in practical life, you can treat that whole thing as a chariot and you can go about using it. It serves all practical purposes. That's the two levels of truth. So deconstruct the self to see that there is no such thing as a self. And then go about your business. (laughs) Uh, Whose business? That thing which appears to be the self. But that removes your suffering, which is clinging to the body and mind as the self. So this was my understanding. How do you reconcile the two? Advaita Vedanta shifts the reference of the I from the body-mind to Brahman, to witness consciousness. Whether through the method of Drik Viveka, the method of the Five Sheets, or method of waking, dreaming, deep sleep, whatever it is, to a non-objective, pure subject consciousness. It shifts the reference. The shift reference means what does the word I refer to? When I say clock, it refers to this. When I say cloth, it refers to this. When I say I, what does it refer to? Usually we will say this. Advaita Vedanta shifts it and it shows you that no, it's not this. It's the witness consciousness. And thereby, uh, we, we overcome all problems. Because all problems are because of this body and mind and our reference to this body and mind as myself. That's Advaita Vedanta. Shifting the reference of the I... What does Madhyamaka Buddhism do? Madhyamaka Buddhism, what it does is, it dissolves the I there itself. None of this body and mind is worthy of being called I. And that's it. You're free. So, so this is my new improved understanding. <laughs> <laughs> and which, you take a broader view, both work. Both work. And I was amazed to see, Swami Chetanaram from St. Louis I spoke with him recently He said, I came across something amazing I just want to tell you Swami Shuddhananda who was the disciple of Swami Vivekananda who worked a lot on Swami Vivekananda's complete works He was one of the presidents of our order a long way back One of the earliest disciples of Swami Vivekananda He writes, it was found in a diary He writes, difference between Shankara and Nagarjuna Shankara says, the I is Brahman Nagarjuna dissolves the I there and there itself. Exactly what I said, and I got that insight from you. So this is this is new, improved understanding. <laughs> Not that the old understanding was wrong, but this is a much much more um, fair understanding. Instead of reducing Madhyamaka to Advaita Vedanta, you appreciate both as grand systems in their own right and take them at their word. Don't say that. Oh, they, you are you are talking about Brahman. You just don't. You have to too shy to mention Brahman. No, we are not talking about Brahman, the Madhyamaka will say to you. And you take it, take the Madhyamaka at his word um, and see that the system works. However, I will end by saying, after all this on the streets of Cambridge, just outside Harvard University, I happened to run into a Lama, (laughs) a Tibetan Lama. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm studying and I'm studying your philosophy said, oh, which books are you studying? Uh, I said, this book and that book I'm studying with Professor Garfield. And he suggested some other books. And then he said, but you are an Advaitin. I said, yes. Oh, it's all the same, you know. <laughs> 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 not only that. <laughs> so this is not a professor. This is an actual, actual practitioner of Tibetan he, he even went on to say, I was amazed. He said, those five verses by Shankara... Uh, I said, Manisha Panchakam, the five verses on enlightenment by Shankaracharya. Acharya." said, yes, yes. I use it in my teaching, he said. <laughs> 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 Good. Puri's mm-hmm. ready? You want, One more. Uh, we can take a question. Um, that gentleman was raising his hand. Please come, yeah. Tell us your name.
3: My name is Matt. Yeah, Matt. And, um, I had a question. I wrote it down so I don't forget. Uh, I've heard you talk about Brahmaloka, the highest heaven, in many of your talks. I understand the concept of one going beyond that and how one still has an identity there and has to attain moksha. Um, one must be, go beyond name and form and uh, beyond the experiencer. Uh, like N- Nachiketa asks Yama about going beyond uh, heaven and is not interested in it. And the question that arose in me is that um, if we all have the opportunity to transcend Maya, where does that leave God? Can God also have the opportunity to transcend Maya, or is that, or is God positioned as the creator of Maya and can never move past it? And then I have a second part to this question. Um, I understand that Advaita is open to all religions, um, but um, and you've also mentioned that you know if one. Um, meditates on one they can have like a vision of whatever god they meditate on and um, my question is if someone if you know a few different people live a life of of devotion um, to certain religions like you know Muhammad or Christ or Kali um, is does it like to see them all go to different heavens or different um, or is you know like different heavens where those gods live or is it all under um, like the same, like, Brahmaloka?
0: Right. Actually, it's a pretty good question that matter to asked. The general form of this question will be, in Advaita Vedanta, which sounds more like a philosophy than a religion, what is the role of religion? By which I mean God and heaven, spiritual practice, and the destiny of human beings. What, where does this leave all of that? The answer is Brahmaloka, what you talked about the highest conception of a spiritual heaven where I am still there, maybe not in this body, maybe in a more perfect heavenly body or in some form and my beloved God is there and I live in the eternal holy presence of God enjoying sugar, not becoming sugar. Is that a possibility? Because that seems to be the goal of all theistic religions. It's a sort of oversimplified description of the Christian, Judaic, Mohammedan, um, or uh, Muslim, uh, or Vaishnava, or Shaiva heaven, you know, whether it's um, Jannath or uh, the Christian heaven, or Vaikunta, or or Kailasha, uh, or the various pure lands of the Mahayana heavens, that seems to be a fair description. I mean, sort of simplified description. Where does it? What does Advaita say about it? Advaita gives that answer. Um, we often talk about attaining enlightenment here and now and realizing that you are the absolute and it's done. No more question of heavens and hells or anything like that. It's done. Because Brahman alone is the reality and heavens, hells and earths and all bodies, and they're all appearances. You go beyond the movie to the screen itself. That's what we often talk about. But if you go back to the original texts of Advaita Vedanta, the Upanishads, They talk about this second option too. If one leads an ethical and religious life and devotion to God. They call it upasana, worship of God. So ethical and moral life plus love and devotion to God. What happens to these persons? Suppose they do not attain the realization, I am Brahman. Either they are not interested in it or they tried but they did not get it. But it's still backed up by a lifetime of devotion and love and surrender. And... Dispassion for worldly. Uh, if, if one does not have dispassion, one is going to come back into the cycle anyway. What happens? They go to this heaven. So, Brahma Loka is a generic term. From an Advaitic perspective, the Ramakrishna Loka we talk about, the Vaikuntha that Vaishnavas talk about, the Kailasha that Shaivas talk about, Devi Loka which the uh, uh, Shaktas talk about. Or the Muslim or Christian and Judaic heaven. No, they may not agree. But this is what the Advaitic perspective is. All of them are talking about Brahma Loka. The highest spiritual realm. Where the devotee of God goes ultimately. If enlightenment is not there yet. And stays there for a really, really long time. Um, and... At the end of this cycle, so so goes. So all of this is very theological, not very philosophical. At the end of the cycle, creation is a cycle of creation, by the grace of God, these highly spiritual souls attain to the realization I am Brahman. And then they lose their individuality and remain as Brahman. So that that's the idea. So that's the place of religion. Religion is there. And if you ask a non-dualist, what do you say about religion? The non-dualist will say, if it's a mature non-dualist, will say highly recommended. <laughs> highly recommended. If you want to be a successful non-dualist, religion is a, good, is a very good foundation, but only a foundation. That's, I love that story about Ramana Maharshi. You've heard of Ramana Maharshi? Who am I? They would always ask that question. So this young, so this person who was a very simple devotee, who came to Ramana Maharshi and said, look, I don't like all that. Who am I? But I love Narayana. My Lord Narayana. Is that alright? And Ramana Maharshi, obviously touched by sincerity said, Yes, it's alright. Oh, it's alright if I worship Narayana. Yes. So after death, will I go to Vaikuntha, heaven? The abode of Narayana. And Ramana Ramanamarshi said, Yes. Oh, I'll go to Vaikuntha. Will I see Narayana? Will I see God in heaven? Yes, you will. Oh, and will God see me? Narayana, will Narayana see me? Yes, he will. Oh, that's so wonderful. And and, and will he speak to me? Will God speak to me in heaven? And uh, Ramana Maharshi said, yes, he will. Oh, and what will God say? What will will Narayana say? He will say, find out who am I. (laughs) On that note, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri ram Krishna Rupa Namastu